Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a special story from today's partner, Ostrich Pillow. Here's more from co-founder Pablo Carascal, who shares a bit about his relationship with Rust and the mission of the company. Hola, my name is Pablo. I'm a product designer based in Madrid, but I'm also the co-founder and CEO of Ostrich Pillow, a brand focused on enabling self-care through good design. Our products help people rest and find relief. That wellness wasn't always a priority in my life. My relationship with rest has a lot to do with where I was raised. I grew up in a small town in Spain where it was common to nap every day. From 2 to 5 p.m., the shops would pull down their gates and the streets would go quiet. People dedicated time to rest every single day. It was a really healthy pace of life, but as I grew up, I forgot this. After the calm of my childhood, I craved energy. So I moved to London and then to Madrid. The frenetic rhythm and the endless possibilities created a supersonic inertia to my life. Until one day, my partner, knowing how tired I felt, saw me a new concept. Less is enough. And it saved everything. It's helped me understand that value could be achieved as a result of quality over quantity. I've been applying it in my personal and professional life ever since. Now. I try to instill this perspective in the Orsis Pillow brand and in my team. We believe in the power of tiny habits to transform us. Small, achievable things you can do each day to take care of yourself. For me, it's a design challenge. We focus on the details, on doing less, but doing it better. For our customers, it's about quality of life. So I challenge you, what is one small change you can make today and repeat tomorrow? What can you do less? Thank you so much again to Pablo for sharing. You can shop Ostrich Pillow online at ostrichpillow.com and follow them on social at Ostrich Pillow Official. Stay tuned as we've got some more fun things planned with Ostrich Pillow across Slow Stories, my personal channels, and their platforms too. But for now, here's my conversation with John Staff of Getaway. This is your sign to take a break. Step outside and feel the delicate earth beneath your feet. Stretch your arms towards the sky and put your phone in your pocket. Whether you're a city dweller or beachgoer, the great outdoors is closer than you think. But no matter where you are, one idea endures. When we disconnect from our devices, the world opens itself up to us in magical ways. And for Getaway founder and CEO John Staff, this idea has gradually become second nature. Founded on the principle that free time should be a right and a ritual for everyone, Getaway Cabins offer visitors the chance to escape, replenish, and slow down. But as the leader of a business whose mission is to help others ultimately do nothing, John has been putting everything into creating a brand that embodies its values, inside and out, online and off. With over a dozen getaway outposts across the country, John contends that reclaiming free time, even in an age that's constantly placing demands on our time and attention, begins within our own backyard. 
And in this interview, John shared more about redefining escape, his relationship with writing, what technology gives and takes from us, and the magic of doing nothing. John is truly down to earth, and his thoughtful approach to life, work, and creativity permeated every part of this conversation, but I won't give too much more away. So on that note, here's John Staff, founder of Getaway. I grew up in a town of 50 people, about five hours north of Minneapolis, where the Mississippi River actually runs north uh, before it turns south to Louisiana. I grew up around a campfire and in nature. I know I'm not meant to connect that to my professional life, but it is pretty uh, connected to, to what I do as a living. I live with my partner in Brooklyn now, and we're pretty active in LGBT causes and in that community. It's amazing. I'm curious to hear, you know, when you were a child, what did getting away mean to you? And how did nature play a role in shaping that definition? The outdoors was so connected and integrated to my childhood, it's, it's, it's hard to disconnect the two. My parents built this house I grew up in out of, you know, lumber they made from the trees on this, this plot of land they bought. It was meant to be their actual cabin, so it was meant to be their escape. But they owned a bar in this this one street town I grew up in, and the bar burned down. And my mother had already begun working at a wood products factory. And when the bar burned down, there was no insurance and obviously less income. And so they made the quick decision to turn this cabin into a home to make ends meet. And so that's the house I grew up in, is this house they built that was meant to be a cabin on a lake with four other houses where you couldn't see any of the other houses. And so I never went to summer camp. I think part of what I'm doing now is trying to make up the fact that I didn't get to go to summer camp, which I've heard so many great things about. But to hear my parents tell it, it was because life was summer camp. And I, I think they were right. Like after school or on weekends or in the summer or just in between moments, we were around the campfire or we were swimming in the lake or we were wandering in the forest. And, you know, the premise of your question is sort of that escape. And I haven't had this thought before, but thinking back on my childhood, there was so much less pressure to escape. There was less I felt I needed to escape from. And of course, part of that was I was a kid and I didn't have adult pressures. But I do think it was also I was, I was surrounded by nature and I was in a culture that you know, was you know, more valued nature and more valued free time and more valued you know, disconnection. Is your family still in Minnesota? Yeah, everybody's um, at home besides me. Except when they're at a getaway outpost, maybe? I took my whole family to getaway. My niece just graduated college, which makes me feel old. <laughs> she graduated in Duluth, Minnesota, and getaway just opened a location near there. And so I took my whole family for the first time. It was really incredible because you, know, you think about this stuff and talk about it, as do I. But I watched my two 12-year-old nephews fight at lunch, have difficulty pulling themselves away from their cell phones, get you know snapped at by their parents. And then we went to Getaway, and it had very little to do with Getaway or the cabins. But as soon as we got there, they laid down in the gravel around the Getaway cabin and started picking through the gravel looking for agates, those special little rocks that polish them are striped. And they did that for like three hours, maybe longer. 
And it happened to be the night of the lunar eclipse. So we went from looking for agates to staring at the moon as a family. And none of that required any instruction. It just happened to be where we were that that Mm -hmm. happened. And it was rewarding for me to to see that unfold. The family decided it needs to be a family tradition. So that was validating to me. That's really, really special. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about youth and childhood lately, especially given all of the challenges that are ahead. Do you ever get any feedback from children or young people about their adventures or their stays when they get away? That's a great question. I hear it from the parents a lot. The parents are funny because either their kid loves nature and that's why they're going or their kid loves screens and that's why they're going. And so the kids are either pushing for this trip or kicking and screaming. But fortunately, at least what gets back to me is they loved it and got value out of it. What I hear from parents that, you know, is meaningful is something along the lines of, I've got a close friend actually who we actually met through Getaway, but we've become close. And he said, I'm with my daughter, you know, almost every day, but we don't talk. And the older she gets, the less we talk about real stuff. And we went to Getaway for the first time and during, you know, a particularly difficult family moment. And we reconnected. Now we go once every three months, which I think is powerful. And I think, you know, that's not just limited to parents and their kids, but, but all of us. Ability to connect is so much easier in nature and when the distractions are cleared away. And you know, what I think many of us can tell ourselves, what I sometimes tell myself is like, okay, tonight's going to be the night when I, you know, go back to my apartment and we're going to have a deep, meaningful conversation. But of course, you know, the apartment's become the workplace for a lot of us and the apartment is full of all sorts of, of triggers of stress outside of work. In my experience, and I think the experience of many parents and others, is changing context really matters in our ability to strengthen our relationships. I also think there's a lot of pressure in terms of actively making space to do those things. It almost feels like another thing that has been added to our to-do list. So to be able to kind of find some sort of instinct that encourages you to make that choice, not because society is saying it and you feel ready to kind of get away and get back to yourself. It's interesting just to think about what getting away meant to me when I was younger versus now. I actually moved around a lot and had exposure to a ton of different environments before ending up here in New York. But I think what's remained a through line in my own life and story is getting away towards solitude. It's the way that I recharge and and feel the most connected. So what role does solitude play in Getaway's mission? My team still rolls their eyes occasionally when I say it, but what we want you to do at Getaway, most ideally, is nothing. And then I get more eye rolls when I say, you know, be bored. Because boredom, you know, is obviously an unpopular concept. It's the thing most of us tried to escape when we were teenagers, but is so rare now. And the science shows, like, boredom is actually bad. Watching paint dry is not enjoyable. But what the science shows is that if you can endure some boredom, you can reach different thoughts in different parts of your brain on the other side of it that you will never get to if you don't go through the pain of feeling a little bit bored. And I connect that to your question about solitude. I have noticed myself, I sort of reject this introvert-extrovert thing. Like I've, I've felt strongly each of those things at different moments of my life, sometimes on the same day. Uh, sometimes for stretches of of months or years at a time. But I've really noticed in myself the extent to which I'm using other people as distraction, as salve to avoid feeling bored or, you know, sitting with gulf feelings or discomfort. And I tried to be more mindful of that. 
there are obviously times when I want to be present with other people and interact with them. There are times where I think what I most need is to be alone. And I hope and believe that getaway is a place where that can happen. It's definitely interesting to kind of navigate that desire living in a place like New York. I found that there's a way to do it to kind of simplify and slow down in a city that seems to always be demanding more of you. What are your tips and tricks? Do you have anything that I should adopt? It's tricky. I think it's just kind of removing the distractions of what quote unquote city life is supposed to be like and finding a way to make it work for you. Ask me again on another day. The answer could be completely different. (laughs) Did you have anything that you learned during the last couple of years? I am. a handful of things. I came out with this book. This is going to be the book plug part. It's called Getting Away 75 Everyday Practices to Disconnect. And it came out right before the pandemic. So actually came out in June 2020, but was written before the pandemic. And some of the things were really helpful and some of them became know, obsolete very quickly. But the ones I've adopted into my own life that have really helped are number one, take a bath. If you're fortunate enough to have a bathtub, it's much harder to take your electronics into the bathtub. It is a a literal physical barrier between myself and most of the things that that draw me in for the worse. And there's a ritual to it. Get a book and a candle and bubble bath. It really helps for those of us who are especially working from home to create a separate space between the workday and the not workday. That's another one of the tips. Announce the end of your workday out loud. It sounds super goofy, but I actually do it. It does help because when I reach into my pocket sort of mindlessly and go to open my inbox or whatever it is, if I've said out loud that I'm not working anymore, I'm more likely to catch myself than if I'm just sort of petering out uh, for the day. I mean, like your own human alarm clock. Yes, 100%. Um, Subscribing to the print edition has been huge. The print edition does not pop up with push notifications telling me I need to think about something else. You know, it's easy to take into nature, into Prospect Park or wherever you want to go. Like some of this stuff, I guess as a general statement, can feel so absolutist, right? Like you need to meditate every morning for an hour in nature. And, you know, if you don't do that consistently every day, you haven't figured it out yet. I'm of a different mind, which is any improvement you can make to your health and your well-being and towards the life you want to live is better. You know, for me, like the newspaper is like a little bit of a crutch. It's like I can feel productive because I'm learning and I'm entertained, but not scrolling Twitter and Instagram. So those are a few that stood out. I'm curious, do you still have a writing practice or did you have one before writing the book? I love writing and I I do try to write still uh, frequently. I had a mentor, you know, taught me, I think correctly, that there's never a a good time to write. There's never a time when it feels like today's the day I'm going to have a long stretch of time to sit down and unspool my thoughts. That's been helpful to me because I've just tried to fit it in wherever I can and save time blocks to write. And when I do, you know, I find myself being sucked in. Not always, you know, sometimes there's writer's block and uh, sometimes I'm not happy with what comes out. But but usually I can get going on its own. That kind of clears away the background thoughts because I end up more focused on the writing. You know, in a way I used to way back when, never professionally, but coders talk about this a lot and that like code and coding just draws you in. Time will pass, hours will pass without, you know, you really thinking about anything else. And, you know, there's that book by Mikhail Shimshek Halat, whose name I cannot pronounce, uh, about flow states that talks about this. And it's a very different experience. You know, it's both work, like coding and, you know, answering emails both feel like work, but they're very different in the way our mind approaches them. And that's true for me in writing as well. It's like developing your own language for what story you're trying to tell. Yeah. And, you know, writing is thinking. I don't really know what I think until I commit it to paper. Sometimes that's a really interesting lesson to learn. 
If there was a practice that you'd add to getting away the book today in 2022, what would it be? Never go anywhere for one night only is one I'm building into. Oh, interesting. I'm doing a terrible job living up to it, but you know, fancy problem to have. But I end up traveling a lot for work. I end up traveling a lot for not work uh, to friends' weddings and, and family reunions. And we're so in and out that we never really experience the place. And we end up, we, I guess in this case, mostly being my partner and I, you know, we never really see the place and we end up totally exhausted by changing time zones and being in and out of the airport. That I want to slow down that part of my life. The hard part about that for me is going to be, it is going to force me to be more selective and choiceful about the places I go, things I participate in. You know, when I do do it, I feel so much better about being present to whatever I'm trying to participate in and not exhausting myself in pursuit of doing that thing. It's tough. I mean, some circumstances don't really allow for that. But, you know, as you kind of learn how to do that, how would you describe your relationship with pace? Oh, uh, a constant battle. Sometimes people think I do what I do because I've figured it out and it's it's exactly the opposite. You know, the standard, I guess, startup thing is like find a problem and try to solve it. And we're kind of a funny company in this regard because some people might think the problem is like people need a place to stay in nature. And, and obviously that's a, a purpose we serve, but the mission and the vision of the company is to make free time a right and a ritual. And that's in part because that's the problem I'm trying to solve is a lack of free time or inconsistent free time or free time getting invaded by so many other things. And I'm now seven or eight years into this company and chipping away at that problem, chipping away at it, you know, hopefully in the lives of our guests, chipping away at it, hopefully in the lives of our employees where we, you know, tried hard to be a company where <clears throat> the inside matches the outside, but also chipping away at it in my own life. I genuinely think I've made progress and we've made progress on all of those fronts, including the personal front, but it's not been a consistent trajectory up into the right. It's been fits and starts and times that I've done better and times when I've done worse and times when I feel like getting it figured out and times when I, I haven't at all. I think it's interesting to navigate those challenges against the backdrop of our really often volatile digital age, which can kind of warp our sense of what free time is and why it's valuable. What do you think technology's biggest impact has been on how we define free time? I think technology has like destroyed free time. I will absolutely risk no redeeming. I think there are redeeming things about technology for sure. The ability to like FaceTime my parents or my partner's parents who are or his family's all over the world and we can connect instantly is huge. And I'm not gonna say that's not beneficial to our lives and bordering on a miracle. But technology's done so many other things to rob us of our attention and our presence and our focus that we almost don't know, I think, what it is like to not have a constant stream of inputs into our lives and a constant you know, stream of requests for our attention. Um, most obviously push notifications and texts and incoming emails. But even if you turn all that stuff off, uh, which I've done, you still know, you know, at any second I can pick up this black square and consume something that will get me out of this feeling of, you know, I don't know what to do, or I don't want to think about what I need to do right now, or I don't want to sit with this feeling. And I think just knowing it's there, even if we're pretty good about not succumbing to it, is a step change in what it is like to live to you know 20 or 30 years ago and you know now saying all of this sounds you know so cliche because we've been talking about it for a while societally but it is so new in the sweep of history like we are the frogs in boiling water over the last you know 20 25 years the iphone came out in 2007 and i think it is 
tempting but wrong to say, can we quit talking about this? We're all so bored about it. It's like, it's basically brand new in the scheme of history. It's a massive shift in how we live and how we feel. And so it's right to think about it and question it. And to your point, like try to think about at least, is there a way to keep a part of the good while getting rid of the bad? But it's seismic. I mean, you really can't put words to it. You mentioned we have to keep talking about it. And I think that's so true because even though it's so much in our conversations, I don't know how much we're learning. Yeah, 100%. But there is, you know, I, gosh, almost six, seven years ago, wrote a piece called Screen Time is the New Smoking. And that felt like I almost didn't publish it because it felt so ridiculous. And it is different, obviously, as far as I'm aware, you know, looking at your phone too much doesn't cause cancer. And so I don't want to minimize, you know, what people go through when, you know, they're experiencing the downsides of tobacco, but it doesn't seem so far-fetched to put that headline on a blog post these days. You know, it really is an addiction. I was having a conversation. I went to my school reunion uh, two weekends ago, and we're having a conversation about like apps that you tried and failed to delete from your phone. And for some people, it was Twitter, like me. Some people, it was Slack. Some people, it was Instagram. But everybody in the conversation, which was a bunch of us, had the experience where we could not get rid of it. We tried and failed. Like that is alarming. And if I have some hope, it's fewer people smoke now than they used to. The government got involved, nonprofits got involved. How do we deal with this thing that's harming in particular children? And so I'm hopeful that we are you know, on the cusp of that moment of a bunch of people locking arms, including industry, by the way, who have made some steps to say, okay, there are real externalities to this thing that, you know, had good intentions when it was invented and, you know, has some real benefits today, but there are externalities that need to be addressed and we need to work together to do that. Well, I think the travel space is, you know, rife for all of that change. I think so many people over the last couple of years especially saw just how much they might have been missing when we were all looking down at our phones until the world called our attention. So I also think the pandemic taught us as difficult as lockdown was. I think we all learned a lot about ourselves, slowing down, having solitude. And now that the world has changed again, I think we might be further ahead thinking about how do we want to spend our time and how do we want to spend our lives for having had that experience, that forced experience of we can't do anything. A lot of that feels bad, but some of it feels good. And some of that I want to carry forward. I think those things have to coexist, the fast and the slow, the good and the bad. And the article that you wrote, is there a passage that you think might resonate with listeners that you'd be open to reading? Oh, it's funny. I wrote this in 2017, and it starts with a graph. It says, this is a graph that gives me hope, and it's U.S. cigarette consumption 1900 to the early 2000s, going way up until 1960 and then way down. There's a lot of data in it. Laptops in class are worse for academic performance. When a screen is in view of children and parents, parents spend less time with their kids, even if they don't look at the screen. Half of people surveyed say a mobile phone has spoiled a key moment in their life. It's very sad to think about. The conclusion is, given the amount of time we spend on cell phones and the more we are expected to be always connected, turning the tide and finding balance again might seem like a pipe dream. But the same feeling might have been felt by tobacco cessation advocates in the middle of the last century. And look at how they turned the tide. It gives me hope that we can too. I mean, it's the work of our lives, disconnecting, especially now. I recently interviewed Ashley Merrill, who's the founder of Lunia. Are you familiar with uh, Yeah, I know Ashley a little bit. Oh, yeah. She was great. But she kind of summed up that tension of 
you know, even though she's an advocate for rest and finding that sense of well-being, she said basically that it's hard to make something meaningful without just straight up time and energy, which can often run counter to slowing down. So yeah, that just made me think of that because we do need to be putting some level of urgency into making these changes. Yeah, these changes for sure. Some ways there's no way around that. And I'm a big advocate of naming tensions. Like it is intention to slow down and to build, you know, to slow down and to change. You know, in our company, it's intention to be a growing company that also where everybody has free time. And I think you have no hope of resolving the tension if you don't say the tension out loud. And so that's what I've tried to do in our company. But I think, but I also think that I guess to use perhaps the overused word boundaries really matter. I think about the Sabbath a lot where those who adhere strongly to the Sabbath are just offline, you know, for a day a week. No negotiation and there's no breaking the rules and there's no, but this week, it's really important that we hit this milestone. It's I'm offline. That's how I live my life. And that's the most important thing. And I think so too, you know, in all of our work, and there's a lot of important work to be done, we will benefit from those sorts of boundaries. But I also think we find, we can find, I found that you can do a lot while still having free time in your life, more than people think. Like I'm in this world of, at least in part, venture capital and private equity in New York City finance, which is kind of like around our company. There's still a lot of people that where this conversation would be quite foreign because the culture is fully like, I'm always on, I'm always connected, and that's what's expected of me. And it blurs between, you know, that's what I really need to do to get my work done. And this is what others are going to notice me doing or not doing. That's how my career will be built or not. But I think it's way more often than the opposite. The We think we need more time than we actually do to accomplish what we're going to try to accomplish. Is it difficult to move between those spaces of finance, getaway? I've benefited from, you know, this is what I'm about and this is what our company's about. And it's been true since the beginning. And I purposefully wove our mission and the fact that we actually believe in our mission into every early conversation with every important stakeholder. And I remember, you know, having some conversations where it wasn't even asked of me, like, John, are you really, do you really care about this stuff? Are you really going to live up to it? Or it was sort of offhandedly like, well, yeah, of course you're going to, you know, work 24 seven to make this come true. And it was my needing to take the opportunity to say, well, no, we're going to be thoughtful and we're going to work hard when we're working, but we're also need to set an example because I think it's the only way we can build a movement and a brand that matters and, you know, attract and retain great talent. I don't think we can do that if we're not for real about this. And so it's kind of actually analogous in a funny way to, I also make sure I come out early to potential investors and partners and so on and so forth. You know, I didn't start the company that many years ago, but was told by some, you should hide your sexuality mm. if you want to maximize your ability to raise money for the company, which I rejected. And same with, you know, being a company about free time. And then people can opt out, right? Like, fortunately, I haven't had that happen on either of these fronts. But the worst case scenario would be, you know, you invest in the company and don't understand who I am or what we're trying to do. And now you're a partner forever. That's the worst outcome. Have there been instances where sharing your story has led to unexpected initiatives or narratives arising within getaways? Storytelling, how much do you like to kind of draw the boundary in terms of injecting your own voice into the company? I think there are appropriate moments to do so. Like in the past on Pride Month, I've written some pretty personal stuff to our audience. And I, I think that makes sense. But I never want to make the company about me. I believe in this stuff. And so I can be a good spokesperson for it. And I've taken opportunities to do that. But there's a lot of other people who believe in it too. And there are a lot of other groups of folks who are part of 
what we're trying to do. And I don't represent them all, and I, I shouldn't and can't represent them all. So I just think it depends on the moment. But I'm a strong believer that companies can't be neutral. And you know, that's another one where I think a lot of folks believe what I believe, which is you know, we have power, we have a microphone, we have a platform, and we have an audience, and our words matter, and our lack of words matter. But there are a lot of folks who, you know, come from a different world where companies were meant to make widgets and sell them and not wade into quote unquote politics, wade into quote unquote issues. I don't think that's an option, but there's still a lot of people out there that believe it. Do you think it's coming from a place of fear for those people? I mean, I think there was, you know, a, a time period in which, you know, it was viewed that if you take sides, as some might say, that you'll alienate, you know, half your customers or a quarter of your customers or, or whatever it is. Maybe that's still true. But many more have spoke up and said, we want to know who we're buying from. We want to know what your values are. We want to know that your actions match your values. We want to support companies who are on the right side of what I don't think are political issues, but I think important societal questions. And it's through those folks speaking up that people that run organizations like me have had the confidence to say, okay, we're going to tell you what we believe and we're going to do our best to live up to it. Yeah. It's almost like a practice. It's something that you have to work at day by day, just shipping away at some of those things that you have to unlearn. I'm just thinking it's probably interesting for you to think about movements that are being born on trips to get away. That might be something to think about asking your community. One of the things I try to make sure the expectations for what happens at Getaway or what comes out of Getaway is set at like almost zero. <laughs> I want to make sure like all these things do happen. New ideas for a nonprofit or a, decide they're going to change their job or, you know, have some breakthrough with their kid or, or whatever. But also the more frequent experience is you just had some time and you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to come up with a big career shift or, or whatever it is. And we don't offer any amenities and we don't offer any activities. And it's now been like years and years and years of people <laughs> usually investors or coworkers saying, but can't we offer yoga or fly fishing or whatever it is? And I think yoga is great. And I think fly fishing is great. And maybe someday we'll figure out how to do these things. But I just want to make sure get through that nature is amazing. And having your time completely unscheduled is amazing. You know, I, I'm so crazy that I want to make sure you're not setting an alarm clock to get up at whatever time it is to go fly fishing, even though fly fishing is this connection in nature. Because so many things get turned into that, right? It's if you do this, even to this conversation, if you slow down, if you meditate, if you whatever, then you'll make all the money you've ever dreamed of. Or then your activism, you know, will really break through. You know, I'm inspired by Oliver Berkman. I don't know if you read his book, 4,000 Weeks. I can't recommend it more. I bought literally 18 copies of it to give to people I care about. And the book was just like super good. And, you know, it just says, we're never going to get to this stuff. We're never going to get it all done. We might like be able to chip away at one or two things in our lifetime and that's worth doing, but we're never going to get to all this stuff on our to-do list. We're never going to get to all this stuff on our you know personal to-do list. We can't be all the things we want to be. We can't like be an incredible activist and be a great parent and like have a great job and a side hustle and like you know have a potpourri of hobbies that we you know maintain like we can't do it all um we hang on to the thought that we can because it's comforting <laughs> to think one day i'm gonna figure it out i'm gonna figure out how to do all of these things and won't that be glorious when i've finally done that and so we buy all these productivity books and try all these different wellness practices and you know berkman says that once we admit that to ourselves that we will be released of the guilt of why haven't I gotten into it yet? 
and maybe we'll make a little bit you know, better decisions with the little bit of time we do have, which I connected pretty strongly with. But he talks about hobbies. Hobbies, too, are these things that if we're going to take it on, we want to, you know, most of us want to do it amazingly well. Like, I'm going to take a pottery and I'm going to make all this beautiful stuff and I'm going to give it to everybody for the holidays and they're going to think, boy, isn't Sean talented? And then what do we do? We never take up pottery because we're afraid we're going to be bad at it. And so his push on hobbies is just do it now and do it poorly. This is a long monologue in reaction no. to your your prompt, but I, always, I, I identify with that. And I want to say to people, it's okay to not start the next thing or do the next thing and especially not to do those things perfectly well. Yeah, I completely agree. And I only said that because at least for me, when all the distraction is stripped away, I've had the most breakthroughs and I have been able to kind of show up more fully, but I'm not saying go to get away to do that. That is, that is the irony, right? Like when I go hiking, I want to be away from it all, especially away from work. And when I go hiking, I have all these these wonderful ideas that I get really excited about. And sometimes they're about work and sometimes they're about life. And I'm happy it happens, but, you know, it is ironic. And I think once I start going into, like, if I start saying to myself, I'm going to go hiking so that I can come up with a great idea or solve this problem, I think it would probably quit working. When you're in those moments, when you're in nature, do you find yourself feeling more gratitude towards the busyness of life? How do you kind of see life from that vantage point? I mean, I think I have an incredible life and all of the things I've been able to do, you know, from being able to grow this company and and the community around it to everything we were talking about earlier, all the friend reunions and weddings and, and so forth is, you know, a wonderful life to get to live. But it's usually, you know, that moment in nature when I'm away from all that, that I can appreciate it more. And so for those listening who might have not arrived at the moment where they feel like they need to disconnect, but they're getting there, what would be your first step for reframing escape or getting away in a positive or nourishing lens? Take a walk. It's as easy as taking a walk. I bought this cookie jar where I lock up my phone. It has a timer on it and you can set the timer from one minute to like 10 days. And I put my phone in there and then I just go out wandering. I take in the city and I notice things about the city I wouldn't notice otherwise. And I come back feeling refreshed and renewed. And it doesn't require getting on a plane. It doesn't require renting a car. It doesn't require being away from home for very long. And this is grandiose, but it makes me feel more human. It makes me feel like I'm part of the community and part of the world simply by getting away from the distractions, even for a couple of hours. And I would add to that, take your walks during golden hour. That's something that has brought me so much joy, just seeing the way the light kind of changes everything. I don't think that's grandiose at all. I think that's why we're here, to notice those things. There's that great quote, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. I think for me, a big part of my life, something that I've really worked into it is learning how to ask questions again. For so long, I was running, driven by external validation, productivity, all the things that I think both of us seem to have been slowly unlearning. There's probably so much more that we could cover, but I want to close things out by asking if there is a particular question that you hope people will start asking you more often. One that comes to mind is what good have you done lately? What good are you doing now? I think it relates to what I was saying about, you know, brands not being neutral and being involved inside and outside of our work lives. You know, taking care of each other in the world is, I think, incumbent on all of us pretty far from feeling that way. You know, maybe this is a kind of like New York coastal thing. I don't know, but I think we all need to be doing some good most of the time. And I think it's fine 
even great if those acts of good are small, but I think it's helpful for particular community expectation. I don't mean you know, the, the question in a critiquing way, but how often do we get asked, what's going on at work? You know, how's your family? Why can't we add to that like soft expectation that we're all you know, doing something once in a while? That is good for the world and each other. That was John Staff, founder of Getaway. You can learn more about Getaway at getaway.house and follow them on social at Getaway House. You can also purchase John's book, Getting Away, 75 Practices for Finding Balance in Our Always-On World, anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in.